0: off your device. That's soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide.
1: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, (sighs) well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble.
0: Hello everyone, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. We are on to another episode. My name's Dwayne Occhelen, I'm your host, and today our guest is Dr. Courtney Warren. Dr. Courtney Warren is a board certified clinical psychologist and adjunct clinical professor in the department of psychiatry And at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas School of Medicine, having won numerous professional awards for her research, Courtney is an expert on addictions, self-deception, romantic relationships, eating pathology, and the practice of psychotherapy from a cross cultural perspective. Today, we're going to talk about her new book that explores breakups through an addictive framework called Letting Go of Your Ex. CBT skills to heal the pain of a breakup and overcome love addiction. We're going to talk about this topic, dig into why and how is love addictive? How do we know when we're in a relationship that might be love addicted? And what do we do when we're ending that relationship? And how do we get out of that relationship in a way that brings about personal growth and self-actualization? So before we start, I just want to thank everyone who has left a review on iTunes, I think we're almost at 500 reviews, which really just blows me away. I can't believe that. But for all the people that have taken the time to do that I really appreciate it and it really does help people find the podcast and get this helpful information so thank you all who have taken the time to do that and also now you can find us on Instagram at addicted mind podcast so check that out as well and yeah let's go ahead and start this episode all right everyone welcome to the addicted mind podcast podcast We today are going to talk about love addiction, and my guest is Courtney Warren. And Courtney, let's just jump in, introduce yourself, and we're going to dig into this topic because I think there's a lot to be said about it and, and a lot of knowledge out there for people who are struggling. So let's just jump in.
2: Let's do it. Well, my name is Dr. Courtney Warren, and I am a clinical psychologist and former tenured professor of psychology, and I really wanted to explore the idea of love as an addictive process through this book for anyone in the general public or any of us, which includes me, who... Go through an experience where they fall madly in love with someone, they crave them, they want to be with them, this addictive nature of romantic love, and then for whatever reason, it doesn't work and you break up. Because I think there's so much neurobiological research that's influencing our conceptualization of romantic love that's really pretty new, that's really emerging in the psych literature and in the mental health literature that really normalizes the experience of falling head over heels in love for people who have experienced it and also gives us a framework for treatment and conceptualization of what's going on in our bodies, in our minds, in our psyches that's making us hyper fixated on a former mate that can really help you move on because that heartache is something that most of us are going to experience at some point in our lives. Fortunately or unfortunately.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So let's just jump in. The title of your book, Letting Go of Your Ex, Using CPD Skills to Overcome the Relationship and, and Do All That. So that title right there just speaks to it. So let's start by just defining love addiction, what that means, what it isn't, and what it is.
2: Great, because it really is a somewhat undefined construct in our field. What The way that I conceptualize love addiction is a set of symptoms, pattern of symptoms, that are hyper-focused on a current or former lover that cause you distress and clinical impairment. So what do I mean by that? Well generally speaking, when you think of love, we don't think of it as addictive. We don't think of it as a problem even. Because for many people, when you fall in love, it's this magical euphoric experience, right?
0: Right. It's great.
2: It's wonderful. Like when things are going well, falling in love is probably one of the most intoxicating natural highs any of us are going to get as a human. It's part of the magic of life, really, for many of us. yeah. But When you fall in love with someone and then it doesn't go well, either because they're unhealthy for you or because they don't love you back or because you know intellectually and rationally that they're not a good fit for you, that this is just not a viable relationship, then it can throw you into a host of symptoms that really look very addictive in nature. It starts with thinking of your lover as your addictive stimulus. You want contact with them. You crave them. You obsessively think about them. You want to know what they're doing and who they're with. And so it becomes the focal point of your life, much like any other addictive behavior will, right? where Whether right. it's pornography or food or eating or substances, they really consume this central importance in your life kind of at the expense of everything else. And as they do that, you find yourself becoming overly interested and overly fixated on how to get close to them again, how to be with them, how to use them essentially. And oftentimes when you're going through a really bad breakup, you'll find yourself acting in ways either to get information about them or to distract yourself from your pain. So you might follow them or search for them on social media or drive by their house or even start stalking them just to try to get a glimpse of what they're doing and who they are and to feel close again, because that closeness temporarily makes you feel better. But in the long run, what happens when you have this cycle of symptoms? That's again, it's obsessive thinking. It's emotional distress. It's cravings for information and contact and these acting out behaviors that ultimately harm you. It results in depressive symptoms, anxiety, self-doubt, low self-esteem, a whole host of things that we would say in psychology are clinically impairing that make it really hard for you to enjoy your life and function on a daily basis.
0: And, And this is a little different from like just breaking up. Like I think when any relationship ends, there's going to be some loss and some grief. But this is this is different than that.
2: Definitely. I mean, I think any breakup is going to be hard. Even if you're the one who are, is breaking up, even if you're the one doing the initiation, it's the end of a relationship with someone who maybe you once really loved, or who you really care about, or who just wasn't a good fit for you. And oftentimes, that experience isn't fun, right? I mean, it's right. not great to to end a relationship, but. Oftentimes in a love addictive breakup, what you see is this obsessionality in these core group of symptoms that really make it hard for you to move on, where you feel stuck to them. You keep going back to them. You doubt your decisions. You want more answers. You're in this churning, really, really painful, uncomfortable, heartbroken phase that is really impairing in a different way than a lot of breakups are.
0: And even if the relationship on some level is not good for you, you still keep going back. That's that obsessive part that keeps driving the person to do all those things that you're saying, like, you know, I guess in a way kind of like stalk them, like, where are they, you know, thinking about them all the time, trying to regain that contact, trying to gain that spark again, I guess that, Mm -hmm. that like we described earlier, the initial rush of, of an exciting new relationship.
2: Yes, that natural high. And really, when you think about it from an addictions perspective, it's that use that gives you a little relief from your symptoms. So it's almost, think of it as a little dopamine hit or a little validation in some way in your system. It feels better to figure out what they're doing or who they're with or get answers because at least it temporarily makes you feel a little bit better. But in the long run, staying fixated on your ex is actually just gonna hurt you more because you're staying focused on an addictive stimulus that, if you're broken up, is no longer really a part of your life. And that leaves this hole of grief and of misunderstanding. And as you mentioned, oftentimes, particularly if you're dating someone that's really unhealthy for you, which certainly happens to a lot of people, the going back is an attempt to feel a little bit high again. So if you're in a really dysfunctional relationship Some of the time the going back is because you're so angry or because you're so conflicted or because you want to punish them or hurt them or you want, for example, details about an affair, which I know is something you talk a lot about, where you get fixated on where were they and who were they with and how long was this going on and I want to read those emails. And as much as you know you don't want to read those emails, there's something that's pulling you towards it because it feels like you'll feel better somehow if you have the the full picture. But in the end, again, you're actually staying potentially in this pretty unhealthy, toxic dynamic with a former lover that really doesn't serve you very well.
0: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial
1: centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash
2: talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, Member FDSC.
0: So why why is this love addictive? What's going on with the brain that like pulls this person back, even if they know like, you know, I, I need to let go of this relationship. This isn't good for me but I can't. I just, I got to keep obsessing and I got to keep thinking about it. And I got to keep doing all these strategies to kind of make some kind of connection.
2: There is some really fascinating neurobiological research pioneered by Dr. Helen Fisher, who was looking at essentially what happens in your dopaminergic reward pathway, in your brain system associated with survival and with a feeling of getting high when you fall in love. And what a lot of her data suggests is that the actual experience of falling in love is designed to make you addicted to your mate. So if you think about just the experience of love or dating – we as human animals go about our business and the world kind of seeking mates. You may not notice that you're doing it, but you're looking at who's around you. You're scanning for potential partners or people you're attracted to. Even in like the grocery store or stopping at a restaurant, you're kind of looking around. And that's really our sex drive. That's lust. It has nothing to do with potential partners, who they are, what they're interested in. It's literally just kind of your sex drive on high alert. Then at some point you meet someone or start dating someone. And if you fall in love with them, you become hyper fixated on them. You become consumed by them. There's something different about them. You go from this searching out potential mates to zoomed in on this one person who feels amazing. And when you look at brain scans of people who fall in love, that romantic honeymoon phase of love, it actually activates this very old survival-based part of your brain that also gets activated when you use a lot of drugs of abuse, like cocaine, where Your thinking part of your brain kind of diminishes in terms of your ability to critically think through your choices and your urges, your survival urges take over. And theoretically, this happens because at our core, we're trying to procreate and be sure that our survival of the survival of our species, essentially, that we fall in love with someone long enough that you want to touch them, you want to have sex with them, you get pregnant, you have a child, and you stay together long enough to ensure the survival of that individual being that you created so that our species will procreate and survive.
0: So there's this biological part that's just part of relationships that's just in our programming to make this happen. But I guess with like love addiction, something goes awry here.
2: Yes. Something goes awry either because the person that you fell in love with isn't somebody that's actually a viable partner for you or a healthy partner for you. So you see this oftentimes when you fall in love with someone and six months in or a year in, you actually start to see cracks in that addictive high that we usually feel early on. And you start to see a little bit more of who they are and who you are in a more realistic, honest way, because a lot of the addictive nature of love, honestly, is a fantasy. And that's something I talk a lot about in this book, how we lie to ourselves, because that's a research expertise of mine. And it's something that keeps you hanging on to people and things that actually no longer serve you, but you can develop a belief system that's really based in these very self-deceptive tendencies. Like when you fall in love, you're very likely to think they complete you and they're this wonderful, magical person and they're perfect, which is very socially reinforced, right? Right. Totally. (laughs) All over the place. Yes, all over the place. You have to be with this person. But over time, you'll start to see who they actually are. You'll start to notice things you maybe don't like about them or things you don't like about yourself or ways that your attachment style or early childhood has affected your attraction to them. And maybe you realize that it's coming from a pretty unhealthy place in you as opposed to a really enhanced, evolved place in you. And so as those cracks start to happen, the addictive nature of love will keep you hanging on to this person, to this mate that you fell for. Even when your rational mind says, ooh, red flag, perhaps this actually isn't the perfect person. Perhaps this person actually isn't good for me, or maybe I objectively don't even like them. Maybe I fell in love with someone who I believed was a certain way because of how I felt when I was around them and because of what I projected onto them and because of my background that felt familiar. And so I was drawn to it. But as I take a step back and as I get out of that addictive phase of honeymoon love, I'm now confronted with a much more honest, brutal truth that this actually may not be a healthy person for me. So you'll hear people who struggle with love addiction often say things like, I rationally want to leave. I rationally don't want to think about them. I don't want to obsess about them. I don't want to wake up in the morning and check my phone to see if they've texted me. But I can't seem to stop myself. I feel driven. I'm compelled. I am literally have urges to be near them, which doesn't make any sense because my rational mind is starting to accept that this isn't a good choice for me. And that is such a common experience with any addiction because you have this conflict between what you know you want to do or what you think is good for you. And then these behavioral and physiological and emotional cravings and urges to keep using something that really isn't very good for you.
0: Right. And and before we started recording, we were talking about like process addictions and behavior addictions. And a part of me is wondering that there's a piece of this that we need, like you said, because it's about survival of our species. It's also about how we connect. But then something happens for some individuals where this piece gets gets hijacked, I guess. It's mm-hmm. it's I don't know if this is right. And you can tell me it gets over responsive to mm-hmm. These cues, maybe, Mm -hmm. and then they get stuck in this addictive loop where this reward system of connection and loss, I guess, kind of wired together, get them into that like that obsessive, like, I can't let this go. If I let this go, I don't know. If I let this go, it's gonna, I'm not gonna survive.
2: Absolutely. I really do think that that's how it works. And when we look at gambling behavior or porn addiction or, even eating, you will see those same patterns where in the moment you can get yourself into this addictive cycle of feelings, thinking, and behaviors that are so damaging to you and so damaging to all of us, so impairing, so painful that I think are very much driven by these biological experiences that are happening unbeknownst to many of us in our own brain mechanics that make it so hard for us to stop using and get unstuck. And so when I think about the treatment process and the way that I really wrote this book, the first step to really understanding the addictive nature of a love-addicted breakup is stopping those symptoms that you're experiencing in the current moment that keep you focused on your ex or keep you focused on the next porn that you want to watch or the next slot machine that you're going to play. Because really... Treating addictive behavior starts with stopping the symptoms that you're having in the moment that are feeding your misery and actually keeping you focused on your addictive stimulus. So that's things like cutting off contact with your ex, getting rid of the stuff in your household and in your environment that reminds you of them, setting healthier boundaries with them and with yourself about how much contact you're willing to have. That might mean not having an active communication with them on social media. It might mean not communicating with mutual friends for a little while. Things that really are designed to stop your symptoms in in the moment and give you some self-efficacy again, where you actually see that you do have some control over what you're experiencing and that there are things you can learn to do to help yourself in the moment so that you don't feel so bad. And then- So I
0: have a a question about that. That's kind of coming up for me. So a person who may not be struggling with this addictive process, they might be able to do these things. Like they, they might be able to say, you know, I am sad. This is awful that it's ending and I'm disappointed. And, but you know what, I need to cut off contact. I'm just, I'm, I'm going to do these things like you're, you're saying, but for a person who is in an addictive state or in a love addictive state, doing that I'm guessing feels much more overwhelming much more like intense to, to be able to say okay I gotta cut off social media or I'm not gonna follow them I'm not gonna I'm not gonna like check out who who are they seeing are they seeing someone else or I'm not gonna try and re-engage they just it's like that doing that is I want I want to say terrifying but I yes. don't know if that's that's exaggerating or if if that's too much, but just to kind of understand like the difference between like kind of a healthy way of how this process works and this addictive way.
2: I think in a more quote unquote normative breakup where you don't have such a strong love addictive pull, there is an awareness that the relationship is over. There's a version of an acceptance of that. And they're probably are mechanisms that any of us will do as we're going through a breakup that help us that don't feel as excruciating. For example, cutting off contact when you've broken up is hard, probably for anybody. But if you aren't in a love addicted breakup, that's sort of the next part of your journey towards breaking up, right? Right. right. And it's it just, doesn't, it's
0: kind of a natural part of the process.
2: Yeah. It doesn't consume you in the same way. It doesn't occupy you in the same way. And even for people who are going through a love addicted breakup now, it doesn't mean that all of their, uh, their breakups are going to be love addicted, quote unquote. It, right. it doesn't mean that every breakup is going to be so hard for you. In fact, you're probably going to have breakups that are feel like a relief, feel good, because it's really about falling madly in love with someone and having the relationship end or being in a relationship that isn't healthy for you that is kind of the nature of what makes it love-addicted versus just your run-of-the-mill breakup. And so, yeah, I think you're absolutely right that in general, people have much more self-care behaviors and much more sort of intuitive knowledge about what it takes to move forward than when you're in a love-addicted breakup where everything feels hard. Even the idea of accepting the breakup feels hard. People who are in the throes of a love-addicted breakup will question it constantly, will still want information about their former lover, even when it is over. Even if the person said, I don't want to be with you anymore. I absolutely am not coming back. There's still this hope or there's still this craving for answers. There's something that they're still not able to let go of.
0: And I also have another question when it comes to, to this, because you're talking about like some relationships that might be, it might be easier to break up. And some of them follow this love addiction process. And what's the difference there for that person? Like, why is one relationship so hard to let go of? I, I know we talked a little bit earlier about like the fantasy and there's there's something maybe there's some kind of resonance. I, I don't know
2: mm-hmm. I think that it really is gonna be about the nature of addictive love. So if you actually fell in love so that you feel addicted to your mate, but also it's going to be about, is it triggering something? in you based on who you are or who your partner is that hooks you in in a different way. And that's where you see codependency and sort of toxic relationship dynamics emerge, which is sort of the second part of the book. And that is more about understanding your core beliefs about yourself and about romantic love itself and your experiences from early childhood, what you learned about romantic love and what you think it means to you that can really, really keep you mired in relationships that are ultimately doomed to fail or very unhealthy. And so after we help people to stop their symptoms in the current moment, right? Those really miserable symptoms of love addiction. The next step is actually to evaluate how you got here in the first place. What was it about this relationship or this partnership or you that led you to be comfortable, familiar, make Conclusions about yourself and them that are now keeping you stuck on them and would potentially keep you stuck on future mates if you did find yourself falling in love again. Because a lot of that is going to get into a much deeper conversation about how safe and secure you feel with intimacy and how safe and secure you feel in your own skin when you're with other people, what you'll tolerate, what you fundamentally believe about love? Is it safe to fall in love? Is it safe to be in a partnership? How should people treat each other when they're in love? What did you witness and see and experience from the time you were a very small child in your family dynamics, in your cultural context, in your early dating experiences as a young teenager that are now coloring your perception of of any relationship that you're going to get into because we all make conclusions about love and about romance and about our partners. And sometimes if those are coming from an insecure place or an anxious place, it will lead you to recurrently being in really unhealthy relationships for you in ways that you may not see because we right, don't yeah. see these things in ourselves, right? Right.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I was thinking about what you were saying. It's like what I'm imagining is that you have your own stuff, your own wounds from your childhood, and all of that, and then you bump into this person that has this kind of fit for those wounds, and then that even heightens that uh, addictiveness. I don't know if that's a word. Yes, addictiveness of it. So that kind of answers my question Mm -hmm. I was asking earlier, which was. You know, why are some relationships, you know, they don't they don't have that power. And then these other relationships do. And if you have this unresolved part, then they connect and they kind of fuse together. That's what I'm imagining. Mm,
2: absolutely. You know, the other thing that I really should say, too, is that we get brain stimulation in this high dopaminergic pathway center of our brain, oftentimes by things that are novel or foreign or interesting. But we also get them sometimes by chaos, by being in environments and in relationships that are very unpredictable. And even though rationally most of us would say that sucks, like it is it is not right, fun right. to be in a chaotic relationship. It isn't fun to be cheated on. It isn't fun to not know whether your partner is going to show up for you or not or be respectful and kind and compassionate with you. But the reality is that some really unhealthy relationship dynamics actually will probably lead you to be more addicted to that person because they're giving you this brain-based hit That makes us more intrigued and interested and stimulated, let's just say at some level. And so letting go of those is sometimes harder than letting go of the ones that actually feel really safe and secure and at some level are probably a lot healthier for you, but not bringing out kind of those core addictive nature hits that we get in our brain when things are less safe.
0: And I would imagine, too, in our society, we're, we're cons- constantly told that, you know, love is supposed to look this way, which is passionate and energetic. And if we have all these kind of maybe mythologies about what love is, I would imagine that kind of feeds into this process, too, because, like you said, wow, this craziness that's going on, this, this intensity, and we get stuck in that.
2: No question. There are so many cultural messages, particularly in Western cultural contexts like ours, around finding your one true love, that you have a soulmate, that when you meet this person, love is enough to make a relationship work. It's bound to work because you're so madly into each other that clearly this is going to be there forever. It's even in a lot of our marriage vows. But the reality is that a lot of it is really not true. It's based in these sort of core foundational lies about what romantic love is and what it should look like and what it should even feel like. You know, the idea that you can maintain that honeymoon in love feeling for the entirety of a long-term relationship, you know, that would be an outlier. That's probably not a realistic assumption, but it's really the way that love is portrayed in our cultural context. I also find that one of the most damaging lies I think people believe when they're going through a breakup and probably even when they're in a toxic relationship is that having a partner is critical to your value that if someone leaves you, or if someone is mean to you, or if someone doesn't want you, somehow it reflects that you are broken, that you are lost, that you are incapable of being loved, that something is wrong with you. And that is just fundamentally not true. And so one of the really key things that I wrote, throughout this book and that I hope people take from it is to really internalize much more honest, helpful beliefs about romantic love and how they apply to you as a human being. Things like your value is exactly the same after a breakup than it was when you were with your mate, that you have value inherently on your own just because you are. And that you don't need a mate to complete you. In fact, if you're looking outside of yourself for validation and for meaning in your life, you're probably going to be continually disappointed. Because really, the journey of romantic relationships is one of finding yourself. It's one of understanding who you are and what you really value and what you need in this lifetime to be fulfilled and whole and healed. And the hope is that you'll share that with people along the way, right? That we actually need Absolutely. interpersonal relationships and we need romantic partners and we need loved ones and we actually need love to survive from early childhood. You're not going to make it without a loving adult in your life. You're probably not even going to survive it. And so really shifting from the personal yucky misery of the moment when you're going through a breakup to a much larger vision of yourself from birth to the end of your life as a journey where you're going to meet lots of people along the way. And some of those relationships are going to last and some of them aren't. And learning to see that you're still you and you get to have some direction Over the course of your life and who's in it and who isn't, that you can change your mind, that you can grow and evolve and transform through heartache and adversity in ways that actually benefit you really shifts the narrative from the breakup breaking you or the toxic relationship breaking you to this is one part of my path to understanding who I am and valuing myself and becoming empowered so that I can be who I choose to be and spread loving, empathic, compassionate messages to myself first and foremost, and then to everyone I encounter along the way.
0: Absolutely. I love that you're you're saying this because it leads to my next question, which is about the subtitle of your book, which Mm. is you know, the title is Letting Go of Your Eggs, and the subtitle is CBT Skills to Heal the Pain of a Breakup and Overcome Love Addiction. Mm-hmm. So as you were talking about that, I'm, I was thinking about CBT and changing this dialogue internally to one that really values yourself and, and all that. So let's jump in and talk a little bit about that. Let's talk about CBT first, because yeah. some people might not know what that means, and then how we use that. To, to do exactly what you're talking about, which is change that narrative.
2: Absolutely. So CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy, and it is a very widely used research-supported framework to treat loved, but really to treat any kind of behavioral or mental health set of symptoms that you're experiencing. And within CBT, it's really a broad framework because there are newer CBTs that you might even hear about that still fall under this umbrella, like dialectical behavior therapy or acceptance and commitment therapy. And really what all of them are trying to do at some level is understand the thinking, behavior, emotional, patterns that are operating in your life and keeping you stuck in a set of symptoms that are really harmful to you. And so from a CBT perspective of love addiction, we're really looking at how you're thinking about love and this breakup and your ex, how that leads you to emotionally experience your ex and your breakup. So how you emotionally feel. Do you feel sad? Do you feel raged? Do you feel depressed? Do you feel anxious? And then how that leads you to want to act or to act. So what does that promote in your behavior? And what we find is that when you can shift that pattern of thinking, behavior, emotion, you will actually shift your experience of the breakup itself or of any mental health set of symptoms that you're having in your life so that you can emerge from it stronger, more honest, more fulfilled in a much better place. And so I'll give you an example, something that I hear a lot. I was just going to ask. I was going to ask for an
0: example because I want to hear Yes.
2: So one of the really common thoughts, automatic thoughts, the thoughts that immediately run through your mind when you're going through a breakup that I hear people say regularly is no one's ever going to want me. No one's ever going to want me. This relationship didn't work. My ex doesn't want me anymore. No one else is ever going to want me. So part of a CBT perspective would be breaking that down and saying, well, what evidence do we have that no one's ever going to want you? Have you dated people in the past? Have other people ever wanted you? Have you completely failed to be a human now, so dating is off the table for the rest of your life and for your future, right? So we start questioning. We start saying, well, what evidence do you have that that belief or that thought is actually true? And as you start to see that your thought is not helpful, and it's actually probably not accurate either, you'll notice that it shifts your emotional experience of it. So when you think, no one's ever going to want me, it would make sense that emotionally that would be really depressing and you'd feel really sad about that. But if you think instead, it's true that my ex doesn't want me right now, but many people have wanted me in the past. And in fact, there are lots of people that I could still date and I still have a long life ahead of me. And so maybe I can even find someone who's healthier for me. You can probably hear that your emotional experience will shift. It doesn't mean that everything feels great. This isn't like a cheerleader.
0: Right, right.
2: But it probably gives you some perspective that says, oh, okay, I actually don't feel as bad. I still feel sad that this relationship is over, but I actually can see that it isn't really a true statement and that there are lots of things that I can do to find another mate who will want me and someone perhaps that I want also. And as that shifts, your behaviors are going to want to shift as well. So if you are stuck in the first loop of they're never going to want me, I'm never going to find anyone, and then you feel sad, your behaviors are also going to follow suit. So you're probably going to want to stay in bed and cry and look your ex up on social media to see who they're dating. Right. That's what I was just right? thinking. Yes. And fa- fixate, obsess over the details of your breakup or anything that you know that they're passionate about it, that they're doing or ways you could run into them. The more you can shift your thinking and emotions, the more you'll be able to get up and say, well... I'm not going to look for them on social media. I actually am going to actively choose to work on my thinking patterns and the amount of time, the degree to which I'll give energy to them, and I'm going to focus on myself instead. And so instead of looking for them on social media, I'm going to get up and I'm going to call my best friend and I'm going to go meet them for coffee and I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to focus on helpful self-healing behaviors that I can do today to get myself out of this cycle. And if you do that every day, slowly but surely this amazing thing happens which is that your symptoms will start to diminish and you'll open up space and energy and time for you to actually get into some of those deeper questions that you and I were talking about, about who you really are and what do you want for yourself now? What do you value? What matters to you? Are there amends that you want to make for how you handled your romantic relationship and breakup? Are there relationships that you've neglected that you really want to get back into and devote time and energy to? Are there ways that you really violated your own moral compass or that you were really inauthentic to yourself and to who you want to be that now you can actively understand and make direct active efforts to shift? And so you're really opening up this place of freedom where you are giving yourself an opportunity to transform through your symptoms and transform through the pain into a space that is a bit daunting and scary. I want to make that really clear. Sometimes with freedom comes great anxiety and trepidation because you're now also more responsible for the choices you make. But with that choice and that opportunity comes freedom to create your next life, to understand how your early childhood and your beliefs about love negatively influenced your past relationships so that you can create new ones that don't have the same baggage attached to them. So that ideally, you'll lust for people, you'll fall in love with someone who actually is really healthy for you, who actually shares your value system and wants to share a life with you and loves you including all of your blemishes and all of those things that any of us would say, well, I love my spouse or I love my mate, but I don't like everything about them, but I choose them anyway. I choose them and I see the things that I don't like because relationships are a choice. Being in a relationship is a choice, period. End of story. And so the more you can choose people and choose to be in relationships that fill you up, that heal you, that make you feel good about who you are and do the same for your partner, the more you will get into a phase of attachment with a partner that is safe and secure, but also really, really wonderful and brings fulfillment and peace to your life instead of heartache and pain.
0: Yeah, I, I I love what you just said. Yeah, I mean, it just fills me with a lot of joy because there's so much hope out there. And I think like your your book gives them that starting path where, you know, we can feel so overwhelmed in these experiences and just don't know where to start. But like you said, there's there's a path here that you can start to follow to be able to get to that space where you can be congruent with yourself and choose the relationship that fits for you and maybe outsmart a little bit of our own biology if that makes sense so that we can function a little bit better and really get the things that we we that are meaningful to us that that we really want and and enjoy
2: you know one of the things you just said is so critical that i i really want people to understand is that we have biological urges to do a lot of things that aren't good for us yeah and i you know right and i think so often when we think about addictive tendencies we want to say that we don't have them we want to say well no i don't crave chocolate or i don't want to go look at that porn it's somehow a character flaw of mine that i fell in love and am now addicted to this person the reality is that we are actually animals we're human animals and our biology is very old in some ways. It's very animalistic. And what separates us is our ability to critically think and make choices about how we're going to respond to those urges. And so one thing that I really say to anyone I'm working with and that I would want anyone out there to know is that falling in love does not mean something's wrong with you. And falling in love with someone who's really bad for you doesn't mean that something's wrong with you. It's just information. You're biologically wired to want a mate and to want to fall for them. So there isn't anything wrong with you. The choice becomes, I'm having this set of symptoms that is really painful. How am I gonna get myself Out of it, let go of my ex so that I can focus on myself and who I am and make deliberate choices based on what I think is healthy and good for me in spite of any biological urges that I might have. And we're all in this together. We're all in the same boat. Research suggests that pretty much all of us, if we're in relationships by choice and not in an arranged marriage, will have our heart broken at some point in this lifetime. You will fall in love with someone and it will cut you in a way that is utterly excruciating. And you're also very likely to do that to somebody else. So as much as we, you know, are very mired in our own pain where we're going through heartache, which makes sense because at some level we're, you know, somewhat narcissistic, selfish beings because we exist in our own minds in many ways. Yep. Remember that there are just as many people coming in and reading my book because they can't get over you. Because you were this ideal person that they completely fell for and now they realize that it isn't going to work or you didn't want them. And so I so encourage all of us when we're going through romantic relationships and breakups to remember to have compassion, try to be the best of what we can be as humans because goodness knows, left to our own devices, we can be absolute monsters. We can absolutely crush other humans in ways that is heartbreaking and cringeworthy. And so even if you're going through a breakup that's easy for you, remember that it might not be easy for the person that you're leaving or that isn't coming along for the rest of the ride with you. And the degree to which we can exemplify the best of humanity, that we can be em- empathic and compassionate and kind, the better for all of us, because we're all going to be there at some point.
0: I, I love that you got to that point because all of this leads to that same path, in my opinion, of, of being the best, best human that we can be. And to help others. And these experiences, although painful, can be a place where we can grow. And what I, I love too is there's books like yours out there that can help guide the way and and give you some direction. So I love to ask one question at the end of every podcast of, of my guests. And and that's if if someone out there is struggling and mm-hmm. maybe they don't know what to do or they're in this situation. And you could tell them one thing, what would be the one thing you'd want it, want them to know?
2: I want you to know that you can do things to help yourself through this. That it isn't really the big life choices that we make that determine our path. It isn't getting married, getting divorced, having children, although those are the things that immediately come to mind, leaving your job. It's the thousands of seemingly small choices that you make in the company of your own mind each day that will help you transform through this. And so whether you use my book or whether you find other methods to try to help yourself through it, know that there are things that you can do to use this as the jumping off place to transform and not the jumping off place to implode.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Courtney, so much for coming on. Where can people find you if they want more information? Where can they go?
2: DrCourtney.com is my website, C-O-R-T-N-E-Y. I'm on LinkedIn and Instagram, and I just started a TikTok channel that's informational, that gives tips and information for people predominantly struggling in romantic relationships.
0: Awesome. I will put all the links in the show notes as usual at TheAddictedMind.com, so you can go there and check them out. Courtney, thank you so much for coming on and just sharing your wisdom with everyone.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com. So check them out there. You can get a link to Dr. Courtney Warren's book. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please click the subscribe button or share the episode with a friend. I'd really appreciate it. And don't forget, you can also join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join and continue the conversation online. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day and I will talk to you on the next episode.